anybody who's in entrepreneurship will tell you faith and believing in yourself are the two biggest things that will propel you. You know, I, if you think of like a person like a Thomas Edison, he failed like 999 times on the light bulb and then he finally got it right. That's entrepreneurship for you. You know, how many times are you willing to take a no? How many times are you willing to get rejected to get a yes? That one yes can change your whole life. So that's entrepreneurship for me in a nutshell. Like people may see closed doors, but I see like, okay, we can, we can cut this open and find an opening through here and make it happen. Welcome to Third Culture Africans, the lifestyle podcast for dreamers, thinkers, and doers. We celebrate artistry, share stories from those brave enough to create something and succeed, listen to diverse perspectives on African success and those shifting the needle on culture. I'm Zezo Sal, your host. On this week's episode of Third Culture Africans, my guest is Tiwa Works, also known as Tiwa Aganga-Williams. He is a bold entrepreneur and a believer in investing in self-growth and development. He also believes that you should be able to take a step back to see the multiple verticals in any business venture so you don't leave money on the table. He has an incredibly positive attitude and believes that entrepreneurship is a lifestyle and uses his networks to get things done and build upon. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did sitting with Tiwa this week. Thank you for joining us, Tiwa, on this week's episode of Third Culture Africans. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. So I have in my notes, you're a multipreneur, community builder, experiential and lifestyle guru, real estate entrepreneur, events and marketing. Sounds about right. <laughs> hey. All true. Guilty. Okay. Fabulous. Everyone knows you as Tiwa Works. Yes. They do. But your real name or government name, have you officially changed your name? Um, not officially, just by, I guess it's really time. Time has just given me that name because as I started business and whatnot, people actually thought Tiwa Works was my legal, legal name and started they calling me that. So when I started as a young person, I just started thinking, you know what? I should just allow this buffer to be there where Tiwa works is this person and business and entity. And I, it kind of gives me a separation from my legal real life. And literally for the last 20 years, really has just been Tiwa works has been my name. And it's funny because people will meet my, my parents and my parents would tell them, Oh, do you know my son? And say, do you know Tiwa? Blah, blah, blah. And they're like, I have no idea who that is. That like, yes, but you know him. He does all this, and then, and he says, "Oh, his name is Tiwa Ward." Oh, of course, of course. Uh, yes, 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 yes. So it's um, I accept it and I enjoy it. <laughs> I enjoy that space of uh, peace and um, privacy with it. You're like um, Lady Gaga. Uh, pretty much like Lady Gaga, <laughs> 007. <laughs> you know, code name. Call me Bond. Call James Bond. Bond. Yes, call me works. Tiwa works. But a.k.a. Tiwa Aganga-Williams. Yes, Tiwa Aganga-Williams. You're Nigerian originally. Yes, Nigerian, British-born, American. So how long did you live in the UK for? Um, so I was born in UK and London, actually, East London, Newham, Newham to be specific. And mm -hmm. I was there till about three years old, then moved to Nigeria with my parents, back to Nigeria. And I think it was around mm -hmm. 11 or 12. 
and that's a story about stuff like moved back to London and I was there from twelve to sixteen. I was in boarding school out west in Bath. Went to boarding school in Bath. So you did your GCSEs? Yes and no. I was preparing for it and I left for America right before GCSE started. <laughs> so I never really actually oh, wow. okay. Yeah, it was it was no sorry, I did GCSEs. A levels I did not do. I didn't do A levels. Yes. So that was because that's like eleventh and twelfth grade. Um so I left at sixteen, mm-hmm. right after GCSE, came to America and I've been here ever since since seventeen. Oh wow. So you're a mix of Nigerian, Brit, American at different phases fused into one. Different phases of life. Three different parts of my life have just been fused into all these uh, three countries and everything, citizenship. So it's, it's, um, it's very unique and blessed to be that, you know. Very true. How, how is it adjusting? I guess adjusting from Nigeria to the UK is one thing. How is the UK to the US? And plus you'd had the Nigeria angle, right? So arriving in the US, how was that for you? So I'd been to the US maybe for holidays a couple of times. I went to California, but obviously as a, as a I was a teenager, I was young. It's probably about maybe I think I went to California when I was like 13 maybe. But it's not the same when you go back as, you know, almost 17 years old and you're about to finish, you know, high school per se, or secondary school. And it was very different because I had my own kind of coming to America type moments, cultural clashes where, and, and I think the one of the biggest things I, I didn't realize was I actually had an accent and hanging around American kids. I'll never forget. I was in Silver Springs, Maryland. And that summer I used to go out and play with um, the kids at the basketball park and they will mock that, imitate every word I say, Oh, why can't you? Oh, why this and that? And, and I said, why are, you, why are you repeating everything I'm saying? And said, oh, because you, you have an accent. Do you? I said, I do? Like, yeah, you've got this British accent. You sound like the Queen Mother. And, and you know, so I was like, oh. it, 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 it was really shocking to hear that because I didn't think I had one. And um, then, you know, the other cultural shock moments was people in America thinking, oh, you're British or you're Nigerian. How did you, did you get here by boat? And I'm looking like by boat. I said, no, I took British Airways. What are you talking about? Like, oh my God, that old chestnut. Yeah. And then they'll, they'll say things like, okay, when they now ask about the Nigerian part. So do you see lions and tigers roaming around? I said, no, I actually saw them in, in, in America when I came here to the zoo. Like I've never seen one before. Like in real life, in real life like <laughs> I, I, you know, lions, I, said, I have a dog, you know, does that count? <laughs> I think the, the questions you get, sometimes are shocking because you're used i used to think oh my god there's a part of africa i don't know because clearly these people know this africa that i've never been to and it's crazy because when and 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 part of this journey of me being here and being here for so long i kind of started to understand why a lot of them were thinking like that like what was being taught to them especially like these are other teenagers like me thinking and wondering, like, oh, people from Africa or Nigeria, oh, it must be lying. It, it, it was like a very deep indoctrination of how they view people from, you know, Africa, like they're like this. Yeah. And I had to explain to them, like, no, I, I, I was in boarding school in Nigeria. No, I had to wear a uniform. Like, 
the driver. They're like, the driver? Like, oh, y'all don't have to <laughs> Say what? Yeah, the driver. Yeah, the, the driver took us to school. So it, it, it became an educational point when people had this kind of unnoticed on, on ignorance to now educate them. Like, no, like we lived, you know, not to say like there weren't, there wasn't poverty, but there, there wasn't, there's classism everywhere. But to understand that everybody like you've heard of is not from the jungle or the bush or live in mud huts. We lived in a modern metropolis city. And it was a great learning lesson for, for myself and to, for them as well, you know. But I, I think being thrust into having to explain that as a kid, I don't know how, what, how that sat with you or what that did to you. But I know my experience was sort of like, are you joking? <laughs> like, especially considering your parents had worked so hard to, in air quotes, expose you to the world. And then someone's view of you is that you I are don't have a bone in my nose, spear toting, you know. hot living. Do I wear underwear? Which is really odd. <laughs> which is really because even the, the the representation of that is beautiful, and the story that comes with that is beautiful. Right. But the fact that the rest of the Western world somehow aren't involved in that narrative is is quite sh- shocking, actually. Just to, to use the right word. Very true. Very true. But fast forward, and then you go to Georgia Southern South, no, Georgia Southwestern State University. Correct. Yes. And then while you're there, you become the mayor of all things: writer, photographer of the magazine, <laughs> the senator of the Student Government Association. You know, it's, it's so funny. Like when I when I think back to it. So when I when I so story is I moved from. England to Maryland. I was in Maryland for probably maybe six months. And, mm-hmm. you know, my uncle, my dad's brothers wanted me to go to college. And I'm like, I'm 17. Mm-hmm. I've not done a bunch. Like, if I'm in America, I want to experience the, a lot of the American things. I want to go to prom. I want to go, you know, I can't wait to go to high school. I want to, I want to wear regular clothes. Because keep in mind, I've been in boarding school my damn near my whole life. And I'm private school. So it's uniform every day. I want to wear regular clothes. Oh my God. So you were looking for that American I'm movie. telling you, yes. Saved by the bell, you know, the bell rings, you run into <laughs> class. I wanted that experience. And, you know, finally my, my, my mother was like, okay, we're moving to Atlanta. And we moved to Atlanta, 96 Olympics. And it was amazing like atlanta if you know the history of atlanta Atlanta was, time yes it was young you know the, just the olympics was here it was popping like all hot music was coming out of atlanta jermaine dupree crisscross tlc you know everybody was in atlanta and it's the black mecca and here i was in you know again metro atlanta sandy springs ended up going to high school for my senior year my last year because remember i did not take the a level so i needed uh, a couple more classes to mm-hmm. graduate and go to college. And the high school I went to, Usher went to school there. A bunch of kids from that were on Nickelodeon shows were there. And it was Curtis Mayfield, uh, the, the singer, his kids went to school. All his kids went to school there. So it was really like the black Beverly Hills. So you were Hills. really living the dream. Oh, my God. I so was. Like, I so immersed myself into American education and school system like overnight and um 
it, it was a true testament of just understanding what my parents are bringing and just being thrown into this new world in six months. And I fitted right in and I loved every minute of school in America. Like, you know. So did you try and practice the accent? No. So I, I actually never did. I, you know, even to the, till today, people say, well, damn, you've been here for so many years. You still kind of have a slight British accent. Like, you don't. Mm. And I and I just never felt like needed to change that. I just that was me, and and that's how I've always been. I I didn't want to now become Americanized, even even if I I think my mentality now is that Americanized and living. But I'm like, man, I I'm a London boy. You know, I was born in London, got in trouble in London. I had my fun in London. Why? Let me just let myself be. And that was kind of the basis of the uniqueness of Tiwa and Tiwa works themselves. So I just loved it i loved it you know this podcast is sponsored by malay natural science malay's products are inspired by the rich landscapes alluring scents and ancient wisdom of africa their luxurious fragrance and body care range balances 100 percent natural active ingredients and scientifically proven formulas to heal protect and pamper your skin Malay ships worldwide and you can buy their products at maleeonline.com. They also offer a free sample if you'd like to try. So is that when Tiwa Works was born or Tiwa Works came later? Tiwa Works came way, way later. So high school, like I said, I experienced everything, went to prom. I went to about five proms because I just was enjoying myself. Like <laughs> I would get invited. Hey, do you want to go to prom? Oh, my, my, my Nigerian. So we meet Nigerian families here and I say, oh, Fumi doesn't have a date. Can Tiwa take her? We'll pay for everything. Oh, Tiwa, I was available. Let's go. You know, and I thoroughly, again, I enjoyed it because, again, it's, it's even when I'm coming from a, a boarding school background and it was an all boys boarding school. So to be able to just experience, I was just taking an American and Atlanta life every bit a moment I could. And um, I know the one thing that really was interesting because I lived not far from my high school. Um, I had to get dropped off by car. I couldn't ride the bus. There's a, there's a proximity limit for the bus is picking people up. So I, I, I now thought, you know what? I need to check this off my list. I need to ride an American school bus, the yellow bus. I need to ride this. And a friend of mine in high school, Jamal Durham, was like, well, you can come home with me on a Friday. And I live on the south side, so you can ride the bus to my house, and your folks can pick you up from my house. I said, oh, of course. So we planned it. Yo, nice. I was, I enjoyed, like, I was like, a, you know, a dog with the head out the window, just enjoying the ride down the highway to his house. And then we went to see, what's her name? The Brat was, had a music, uh, a, a CD release. We went to mm. see her that day. She signed it. I took pictures of her. So it was like, again, I was, I, you know, it's kind of like the wonder years for me. I was Kevin Arnold. I was just taking everything in and enjoying America. You know, like I said, my coming to America story, I was Prince Akeem. I'm here. Give me every, give me the full experience. <laughs> <laughs> and so, by the time you get to university, any society or club you could join, you pretty much joined. Yeah. So the the story of um, college, you know, I'm by my senior year, my last year in high school, I'd made a ton of friends. I'm I'm very personable. I had so many friends in school, and I wanted to actually go to Georgia State, which was downtown Atlanta, about 25 minutes from where we live. But my parents just felt, you know, you this boy, you got friendly and made so many friends so quickly. I don't think you should go to school in the city. Like, you won't face your work. And, you know, 
your eye and girls too. So you need to go somewhere that's just far away, like kind of like how mm-hmm. I was sent to boarding school in Bath, which is like mm-hmm. four hours away from London, and nothing was there. Mm-hmm. They recreated that environment. I ended up in a city called America's Georgia. It's about three and a half mm-hmm. hours from Atlanta. And on the way there, I remember, I would never forget this, on the way down there, my parents were driving, and it was nothing but cotton fields, like miles and miles to the horizon, <laughs> just wide open cotton fields. And I'm looking like, damn, this is where they, they had the slaves back in the day. Like, I could just, you know, see the scenes of them in the field. And my, my, I remember my stepdad yeah. was like, yes, this is it. Nothing for you to do out here but to do your schoolwork. See, hey, see me, see my life. And um, from 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 Mr. America to Mr. America to being banished in the country. Out, out I mean, you're talking about a country or... country town where it's you know they, my parents are laughing saying there was one stoplight and it's one way streets on either direction and literally that's what it is. And the biggest restaurant there was a Ruby Tuesday, and Walmart is the mall. That's it. So you can give you a team of nice. you know small country town, but the the beautiful thing again is me coming with student this. Student life is great. It's all about it's a college town, so student life, mm-hmm. everything around it revolves around the university. So I got there, and again, I on you know one thing about I love about America is that especially in the south, is the southern hospitality is like they 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 speak to you. I used to wonder like why are you speaking to me? I don't know you. But it's a southern thing. Like if they say, "Hey, you have to That's say hi London to you." In you. Yes, you know exactly. That. You know we're kind of like Londoners. We're more like New Yorkers, even Nigerians. Like, ah, do I know you? Why are you talking to me? But here in the south, it's like, "Hey, how you doing?" And then I, you end up striking conversations with strangers, and sometimes become friends or business partners or whatever the case may be. So I took that on as well. And you know, first year of school, made a lot of friends. I got involved quickly and. Um, Involved in everything. And like I said, on, on my resume, I was involved in students in free enterprise. I joined Saab, Student African American Brotherhood. I did everything. I just was very involved in kind of started building the foundation of who Tiwa Works was supposed to be. And that was the networking, you know, these groups, social organizations and, and the perks of being in them, you know, ended up traveling. And it's so funny being in, in school down there. Joining this organization, there were perks. I ended up going, traveling back to London as a president of one of the clubs, went to Germany, went to France, went to all these places that I never would have done if I probably had went to Georgia State. Or if you just were reading your books. I'm telling you, exactly. If you just <laughs> face your front. <laughs> face your front and read your books. Yes. But then that takes you into, I guess, the sorority fraternity world. Yes. Oh my God. And so you join Kappa Alpha Psi. How does it work? Do you join or do they recruit you or? So, without divulging, because it's, you know, I I don't want to say secret society per se, but there's a lot of unsaid things that as members you cannot necessarily divulge, but you you do join. And are you recruited? Mm, Yes and no. I actually expressed my interest to them because when I, again, first day of school, we have orientation team. Orientation team are all um, current students who welcome you in. They show you the dorms. They show you activities. They do team building exercises. And again, it's a small southern country town. And obviously, I saw the black students and also saw some of the um, 
the black students were, you couldn't wear any kind of paraphernalia or, or whatnot. But I did notice that afterwards, everybody was in, if, in an organization with different colors and Greek letters. And again, being this Nigerian British kid, I had no idea what that was, but I noticed that they would have sort of these shows, maybe like mid semester where they will bring in like five people wearing a mask and they're all in formation mm. and there's the whole gym is packed and they Match take, passed. yeah, they take a mask off and everybody goes crazy. And the guy is yelling and saying he's now this mm. person. And I, I was intrigued, like, what is this? You know? And then I found mm. out like a couple of like guys I became really good friends with were in fraternities. So the one that mm. really stuck out to me was Kappa because it just, again, they, I always used to see them wearing their blazers and, they would dress up nice. And I was used to that lifestyle already coming from boarding school where we always had to wear pinstripe blazers and pinstripe pants and blazers. So I gravitated yeah. towards them. And I, I, I remember telling one of my counselors for, I was a computer information systems major and uh, Tremaine. And I told him, I said, hey, you know, uh, I think I want to be a member. I want to join. And he looked at me and was like, I don't know. I said, what do you mean you don't? And keep in mind, I've already joined these other organizations and they never told me, mm. I don't know. So this one said, I don't yeah. know. I remember telling Sed, Sed was an older frat brother and he laughed at me and I was confused. Mm. He says, it's not for you. So it's part of a deterrent thing where they tell you that it's not for you, but they want to see how bad do you really want it. And it was a psychological mm. thing early and, you know, I pledged and, um, it was it was four of us on our line, and I went through the same process and earned my letters, and I had my probate, kind of like the same thing. We had our own day where we came out on stage in the arts theater and masked up, mm. took off our mask, and introduced who we are, you know. So and and something about that is person building, right? Like in in the journey, big time. It's so one thing I I always tell people about when you pledge. Uh, a black fraternity or sorority, it's literally, they take you from who you are as a raw person, they break you down to the lowest form and they rebuild you, which is why now if you kind of find anybody who's in a fraternity or sorority, you would notice that they're damn near one of the top of the top of a cream of the crop. And Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King was a member, is, was a member of Alpha Phi Alpha. His wife, Coretta Scott King, was um, Alpha Kappa Alpha. Bill Clinton is Phi Beta Sigma. You know, you've got Bill Russell, who is Kappa Alpha. Um, no, Shaq is Omega Psi Phi. You've got so many different members. Um, Congressman John Lewis, who just passed in Atlanta, he was Phi Beta Sigma. Um, so you have this essence of black unity and, and um, success and just excellence within black fraternities and sororities. So I just was so proud to have been able to have uh, have gone through that journey and become a new person. And that there was the seed ground foundation of Tiwa Works. Right there at that moment, joining Cap Alpha Psi, kind of my trajectory in life took a very good sharp turn for such a great direction that I live today. And so you take that, but you finish it, well, you take that and start the Atlantic Greek. Yes, the Atlantic Greek picnic. Events? Yes. So... But right before Was it always a picnic or Yes. So right before I started the Greek picnic, after I'd become a member of Kappa Alpha Psi, um, I had to hold office 
official office within the fraternity to conduct business. And part of that obviously is to also raise funds and have different type of initiatives that we as brothers on this campus and our chapter can develop. So we had community service projects in place. We built a house with um, uh, Habitat for Humanity. We raised money for charities. We donated. We mentored kids in the local um, middle schools and um, elementary school and high school. And um, the, the other part, obviously, was the social part, which is one of the fun parts of being in a fraternity or sorority, is we, we threw some of the best parties. So I, again, because I'd, I'd come from this great social background leading up from leaving Nigeria to England to, uh, to school in America. By the way, I have here in brackets... Minister of Enjoyment. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, like I literally. We'll get to that part of your, of your yeah, career, You make a living being the Minister of Enjoyment. Minister of Enjoyment. Like, you know, I, I, I've just been blessed that while in college, you know, I was able to have my entrepreneur. I was already an entrepreneur by nature, just from family. But like for it, you know, when you're in school, in college, you're there to just not only I don't want to sound cliche by saying find yourself, but it's also a moment for you to really discover who you are and what you want to be in this lifetime. And college, especially in America, is a ground for networking and building and development. And if you kind of watch or listen to any story from anybody who has started business and they were in college, they'll tell you they met their business partner or they came up with an idea in college. You know, Mark Zuckerberg, quote unquote, you know, despite the little difference you know, Facebook idea was was born in college. And it's a breeding ground because it's the ability to test out new products, services, networking. And for me, when I when I joined Kappa and I took I took the position of special events coordinator because I already knew um all the groups I was in, I could network easily. I was on the orientation team, which brought new students in. So in my mind I said, you know what, I already see a pipeline of how we can dominate these events against everybody else trying to host events. I have the pipeline. I have access to all the new students. Excuse me. All the new students every semester coming in, mm. I meet them first. I'm, and I'm typically the only black guy on that team. So all the black students mm. will gravitate to me and say, hey, so where's the first party? What are we doing? What, what's going on? I'm, I'm ready to turn up. And then it's, well, I'll let you know where the first party is. Take my number. And I started building this database of, you may think about it, a thousand students coming in every semester to school, at least half of them know who I am or everybody knows who I am. And I can kind of let them know this is what we have for the first party back in school and Kappa is throwing it. And we were raising and making so much money that I remember one time we donated a check of, and this is like, you know, such a, a while ago, $8,000 when we did a step show. We're making money. We're doing parties and coming up with different ideas with the, with the white fraternity. Say, hey, Kappa Sigma, let's do a party together and call it Kappa Fest. And it became the biggest party on campus on a Thursday night. Nobody was doing things out of the box. And that's what we were, I was bringing to the table. And, uh, you know, we, we unfortunately got suspended. We had an internal issue. We got suspended. And the hiatus gave us an opportunity to, Okay, before we got suspended, we traveled to Florida, which is an hour and a half away from our school. We were close to the Florida borderline. And again, this was one of the benefits of going to school down there. We went to an event called the Kapaluau. Kapaluau was the biggest Greek event that I've ever heard or seen. And it was on a ranch in Tallahassee, Florida. 
my cousin, who, again, kind of very similar stories to me. She's born in England, Nigerian. She's living in America. She was living in Tallahassee, and she joined the sorority the year before me. So I called her like, hey, I'm coming down for Kapaluau, me and my frat brothers. And that experience there was, again, a life-changing moment because, again, keep in mind where I'm coming from, I'd never seen this many people together in one place. I mean, it was thousands of people. You had football players. They were giving away, Budweiser were giving away free beer. Uh, slip and slide, Trick Daddy Trina were performing. It was insane. So I took that visual in my head and um, kept it, you know. And, and it's funny, I, I'm saying this because yesterday I tweeted out, um, sometimes we birth ideas so early that we're not ready for and we just have to put it on the shelf. So I literally mm. did that. I wasn't ready for what that, just seeing that. So I went back two years in a row. And in between that, when we were suspended, we started throwing, me and my line brother, Dave, David Farley, started throwing parties under the company name for Show Entertainment. And for Show Entertainment, mm-hmm. literally, we had no, because within the fraternity, you've got boundaries and rules and things you have to abide by. But I told Dave, like, hey, look, bro, let's, let's go full-fledged and run this as a business. And he was like, but we don't have a business license. I said, but we don't need any of that. We have a relationship yeah. with the club. Let's restructure our deal. 50-50 split, expenses and everything down the middle. And he, he was like, no, they will never agree. They agreed to it. So this is your first business venture born? First business venture born, born in college. Sat down with the club owners at the Elks Lodge. I mean, they were such great guys still today. James Hollis, Jimmy Green. And sat down and told them, like, hey, we, you know, all they want to know is results. They don't want to hear anything but results. Can you bring people? I said, of course we can bring people. So we did this. We formulated it. And I remember our first event, myself and David, after our split, we made $800 a night each for the night, which was insane because our allowance was $100 a month. We made $800 each in three hours. And then I started DJing why, because why? we did not. Why are you going to school again? You know, you might, I mean, yo, like, keep in mind, I mean, teachers are teaching me stuff, but I'm thinking to myself, man, I'm thinking, how can I make 2400 by the end of this month? $3,200 mm-hmm. as a college student, you know? And mm-hmm. it was very unheard of because people were not doing that. Everybody was just in school facing your work, and that was it. But here I had gotten my first taste of success of an entrepreneurial venture that I, we dared to do. And mm. we just kept pushing the limit. So he and I would meet up. And it's, it's great because Dave is like, you know, Dave and I had been always tight as frat brothers. Mm. And we just always, every time we meet, we say, hey, let's, let's plan this. And, I, and the biggest thing we were learning was the ability to plan things early, to, to really... Um, formulate and come up with different strategies early. And that's how was our competitive mm. advantage over everybody else. And I remember when, you know, homecoming, again, an American thing I'd never experienced outside of from high school. Now in college, I, okay, there's homecoming. Homecoming, mm. every, you know, big game, all the alumni come back. It's, it's a festivities every day of the week for a whole week. And I told him, I said, yo, homecoming's coming. We need to do something big and capture that crowd. Because the rival club is always doing the same thing. I said, we have to break that mold. So we spoke and said, look, let's go to the local media station on media. Carla Morris was our account rep. And I asked, I said, look, 
let's buy some TV ads. Let's not do radio. Everybody does radio and we don't listen to radio like that. But everybody watches BET. Let's go find out the ads. Spoke to the lady and it, we found out the ads were $3 a spot. And Dave's eyes opened so wide. He's like, $3 a spot? I asked us, what's the minimum purchase? She said, there's no minimum because nobody was buying ads for BET in that region. So I looked at him with a smirk and said, okay, we'll come back. We went to the club. We told them, because we're doing a split, we need to spend $600 on TV ads, 200 ads, flood radio for homecoming, uh, flood TV. And they gave us their cut. We did it. And we recorded this doc because we had been documenting and people thought the whole country was watching them on BET doing 106 in Park with AJ and Free in between Jay-Z commercials and videos. And the club was insane. I mean, we netted after, again, our split, $8,000 a piece. So the club generated uh, literally almost $35,000 that night. From one night. From one night. I mean, I I'd never touched that much cash that I personally earned ever in my life. And I was so motivated. I was hyped. And just ready to just, you know, now my major, I was, I was going to school information for a degree. Systems. It <laughs> was, information was, I was, I was so mind blown and tired of it. I'm like, like I was tired of my degree. I knew that I definitely knew the CIS degree I chose was not for me. I knew it at mm. that moment. Like, I don't mm. want to do this anymore, but I'm almost yeah. done. I'm going into my junior, I have about a year left, a year, year and a half. And I just said, you know what? I'm just going to finish because I can't change. I'm so deep in, I can't change. But my mind was on business. Like, okay, how can we make more money? How can we do different things? And it, it took off to such a great level that, again, once I graduated, the, uh, the, 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 the demand was there. Like, we had built a brand. And um, Dave, um, Dave um, is from South Georgia, so he didn't move back to Atlanta. I went back to Atlanta. and. When I came back, it's now, is, am I going to get a job when I've been making more than some of these guys making it in a week, in three, ni- in three hours? And I just, you know, told my parents, like, look, I want to do this party business. And, you know, Nigerian parents, party care. You want to do party business. <laughs> these boys, they said, come on, talk to your son. He's doing party. And I had to explain to them, like, let me tell you how much I've made. Like, it's a thing. And the one thing I love about my parents is they may be skeptical, but if you are very passionate and you you push that this is what you want to do, my stepdad was like, let him be, leave him. If somebody has this much passion, they will succeed. He said he's willing to lose, he will succeed. And that's what happened. There were losses now, don't get me wrong. Those, those were some, I had some wins, but I also had some losses. I've lost some money. But yeah. the idea now, I, I really now with, with the support of family, and I said, okay, how can I really make a business out of this party business and, and grow? And I met mm. a business partner, a new business partner in Atlanta, Sean Black, approached me because I'd been throwing little happy hours when I, I graduated and mentioned, let's throw this event called uh, Final Fridays. It's once a month for young professionals like yourself and everybody so else. So hold on, the Greek picnic is still not... This is all pre-Greek picnic. So you're still honing your skills. Exactly. So this is all pre-Greek picnic. So this is like, I graduated in 03. So this is right before the summer of 03, you were throwing all these little happy hours in Buckhead and 
you know, my Greek mm. friends would come and learning, you know, what works, what doesn't work and slowly building money or losing money here and there. It wasn't crazy like a lot. But, but while your peers are, are now in full-time jobs, graduated. I have my degree. It's collecting dust already. And um, I just, uh, I remember a friend of mine, Vanetta Green, said, hey, why don't you think about doing something for the Greeks, for us? You know, like, you know, a lot of people, you know, the Kappas, you're, you know, you're connected, make it happen. And I was like, mm. you know what? She's right. So I, I called up Maurice Brown, president of the college. And Maurice Brown was the only campus in the city of Atlanta that had a three acre piece of land with the fraternity plots around. And it's mm. right next to the Georgia Dome. Great landmark. So I called him up like, hey, want to throw something? And um, I got approved. The president told me, well, just work out a security plan and all these other things. So I called the police officer from the club I was hosting the final Fridays and um, the security team to work. And it's, I, I love to say this because till today, the same police officers been working with me for the last 15 years um, on this business. But I have a question though. What is the motivation for you just balls to the wall? I can speak to BT. Police officer, please become, you know, because as Africans, we're taught to be afraid, right? There's something. Right, you're right. It, it's, it's the audacity and just, again, the confidence that had been built in me from when I first moved to America of just life here is have the audacity to, mm. to, to, to think and dream big, you know? So, mm. and also the ability that I've done over the years of networking, you know, again, being uprooted twice from school systems and being thrown into another place and you have to make friends, you have to network, you have to assimilate yourself into this new society. So it's the same thing with business. Mm-hmm. I just been, I just graduated, started throwing parties at this restaurant, uh, Django's, and you know, this every I'm working with these guys once a month, and in a couple of hours we form a friendship and relationship. You shake hands, even the police officer. You got to mm-hmm. be his friend because he's responsible for who's coming in or who's not coming in. So you you end up becoming friends. Like, hey, you know, and and you build that relationship because you need those type of people in your corner. Anything, anytime anything happens, you can make that happen. So that audacity in me was just um, embodied in me. I just was able to always step forward. I know, you know what? I'm a big thinker. I can make this happen. Like, let's, let's talk. And it's literally, you know, you negotiate your rates and just factor in, okay, how much are you going to get paid? Cool. All right, bet. I got you. No problem. We'll make that happen. And it just was, and, and it, the great thing about it, because of the relationship we have, they also were invested in whatever idea I came up with. Like, okay, we trust Tiwa. Tiwa has mm-hmm. been very, you know, straightforward. You know, he makes money, we make money. So we take his business endeavors as ours as well. So that's literally what mm-hmm. happened with everything. And, you know, it's all about relationships. The biggest thing I can tell you from day one is the ability to network and form these great relationships. Like, you know, and, and, and it comes from simply when you come into the office, you don't even have to start talking about why you came in there. Hey, how are you? Oh man, so oh you went to school here? Oh, me too. And you form a nice sort of friendship because it's the norm that it's not the norm. People come in to any opportunity and they just come in for what they want. And you know, people who are working these jobs, it's monotonous. It's the same thing in and out. But when you come with a breath of fresh air, you fine-tune a new type of relationship with them and they they go out for you on a limp. They go all the way out. And that's what the lady at On Media Colomores did. My security team did. Everybody was doing because we were forming such great bonds and relationships. 
and it was great for business. But that's also a testament to you as a person, though. One of the quotes that you're, I want to say, famous for saying and being in, or being influenced by is Jim Rohn. Yes. Now, at this point, have you been introduced to Jim Rohn? No, I have not. So Jim Rohn is a distant mentor. I've never, he mm-hmm. passed a couple of years ago. So I've never physically met him. But one thing mm-hmm. about anyone that is in, is in any aspect of business is you can adapt anyone to be a mentor without physically knowing them. And I did that because his philosophies on life, living, and business were so exceptional. And I'd been listening to him since I was in London. Like my parents introduced me to Jim Rohn and the ability to understand all these little philosophies. I applied it to real life. Okay, so you've mentioned your parents a few times. Sorry. I think for context, you come from two successful parents. Your mom used to be a finance banker who's now a life coach and she's a published author. And then your father, a multipreneur. As well. Correct. Okay. So you've seen entrepreneurship in action. Big time. All the way since I was a child. I've seen it in full action. And so no one is saying to you, Mr. Lifestyle Guy. Right. It wasn't called Lifestyle then, was it? Or Mr. Party? You know, I think... Even still, I think it, was, it took a while, even my parents to, or really my mother, to really understand the gravity. Because she, she wasn't coming to the events. You know, she wasn't like, oh, I'm going to come out at night to come see what you're doing. No, it wasn't until a couple of years into the Greek picnic. And the Greek, Greek, Greek picnic started off as like, the first event was about 300 people. It was so small, you could see the grass. That's how, and I say that in context of how big the space is. Now you cannot see the grass. That's how crazy you just see people you run the biggest i guess for context for people who know nothing about the u.s or sororities or fraternities the greek picnic is the biggest event in any university alumni sorority fraternity calendar in the u.s 15 years running every single summer it's the number one destination do you have at the event we we bring in twenty thousand people every summer that's like filling up like an arena stadium, right? Yes. It's very hard to visually grasp, but it is insane. Like the whole city is filled with people from hotels to every, in fact, my dentist, who is an uh, elderly white lady said to me, I saw your people here. And I it didn't really say it was <laughs> yours because she saw the Greek letters and she's like, oh my God, tea was people, tea was, tea was weekend is here, you know? So oh, wow. it's, it's, it's such a big thing that the Greek picnic is also adding to the GDP of the state and the city in terms of tax revenue and economic impact. I think we've, we registered that we have amazing. a $25 million economic impact that weekend. And um, it's such an amazing thing that we, we just love. It just still feels surreal that we're 15 years in. I digress to Jim Rohn again. Yes. Um, and one of his quotes is, working for yourself will lead you to a fortune. Or Now, statistically. Yeah. So Jim Rohn says, you know, work hard on yourself than you do your job. <clears throat> if you work hard on your job, you make a living. If you work hard on yourself, you make a fortune. So mm-hmm. understanding that, it, it comes from the place of personal development, networking, you know, everything that just takes you as an individual to a higher level. And I, I referenced back back to even my fraternity days in college where I was 
worked on, I was redeveloped, I was re-engineered as a person to become, you know, have this audacity to dare and to shoot high beyond what others, you know, and the, the, the model for Kappa Alpha Psi is achievement in every field of human endeavor. So we always say that mm. to ourselves, like we, it's all about achievement, that dreamers, you know, we're, we're, we're achievers. And so I lived that, I embodied that whole thing throughout. I've been embodying that since, you know, I joined that fraternity. That's why I mentioned earlier that the fraternity life had really shaped and pivoted me in such a great direction and was, and I always would give credit to my organization as making me 10 times, 100 times better than who I was prior to and to be able to achieve and grow and to even now to develop an event like the Greek Picnic and, and be in charge of so many, you know, educated young black men and women from around the country mm. under this context, you know, on a historical black so campus. The Greek picnic formed by a African, Nigerian, British come American. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> which is the backbone for, I guess, HBCU culture. And for a large part, Black America or Black educated America. And we'll get into Black Lives Matter and stuff in, in a little bit because that's playing a huge role. But I want to talk about your other achievements in, in entrepreneurship. So in 2007, you go into real estate. Yes. And then the recession. Yeah. So real estate came about. Great story with that because um, one thing I do realize is that, you know, multiple streams of income is very necessary. The Greek picnic gave me the opportunity to work literally, figuratively, one weekend a year. And I was free for the rest of the year till we came back again. And so I had time on my hands, but I was also hosting. So final Fridays had now turned into perfect Fridays. So it was every Friday of the week. So, you know, literally for the whole year, we hosted final Fridays. And perfect Friday, excuse mm. me. So with that, I was meeting people every week. We're touching well over 500 to six, 700 people every Friday. And with that, you meet everybody. You know, we've met from Terrence J, Anthony Anderson. You know, we even booked Idris Elba. Brandy has been to our parties. And, you know, working this is, again, the networking. I'm meeting these people. I remember a couple of people asking me, hey, you know, I'm thinking about moving to Atlanta. I love Atlanta. ATL is popping where um, I want to buy a home. Do you know a real estate agent? I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know this one guy. Let me, let me give you his number. You can call him. And that will happen. A week later, another person. I think by the third time, I said, you know what? I need to stop because I'm not getting any money. Like, I'm not getting, I mean, people are buying a lot of house here. I mean, you get a lot of mm. bang for your buck. So I said, you know what? I've got time. I can knock this out in 30 days. And I said, I need to get a, my company licensed. So I did the real estate exam, got licensed, and we start to, started selling real estate to people. So we leveraged these, this event of pulling people in and selling them Atlanta, you know. And who better than Tiwa to tell you about this amazing city that I so love and I'm embodied in weekly and big festivals and everything to you, for you to come and live here. And then I kind of I understood the construct of the city. So we've been licensed mm. since then. We actually just had a closing uh, two days ago here as well. Another client, a buyer who bought six years ago, we just sold his property, closed on Monday. So real estate nice. is just a huge, 
another aspect. And and I just and I say to encourage anyone that's listening is like, you know, any business you're in, find the multiple verticals that you can, you know, create under your umbrella and develop because mm-hmm. it's it's money being left on the table. And it's one of those things where you don't want a to lose to lose out. Because again, after the third referral, I just knew that I had to make sure we had this real estate license. And it's been an amazing journey with that as well. So how is, I guess, trading through a recession? Oh, it was tough because everything went down. But the great thing about it was to stay optimistic and wait for the bounce back. Because if you kind of study history, which I'm an avid studier of, like with every up, there's a down. And with every down, there's an up. Mm -hmm. So, you know, with the recession, Mm -hmm. there's going to be, you know, there's going to be the upside of it. And we literally waited and we, we bet right. We were able to get a lot of clients that were not looking to, you know, find opportunities of buying homes or, you know, things are all pennies on a dollar. The banks is trying to sell off all these foreclosed properties. And it was great. It was really great. And it's funny because uh, I've not realized in a recession, I think we made the most money during our parties because, again, people were looking for an escape from reality, mm-hmm. you know. And, and what would they turn to is a party that won't cost them a lot of money free before 11 or 12 drinks of 10 bucks. You know, people were flooding. I, I mean, I'll never forget me and my business partner, Sean Black, people were flooding our events. It, I mean, at some point we, like, we were about to bust at the seams of the volume of people in the club and, you know, being smart, generate a lot of revenue, saved money, bought myself a home and, um, but this is testament to your marketing abilities, right? Which you touched on a little bit, which was you're saying come for free before a certain time. You have to entice because again, you're running, comp- you're running competitively against so many other. We're not the only venue or the only promoters or, or event mm. concept in the city. A city of Atlanta that was push, pushing over 3 million people, you know, and it's the young black Mecca with all the celebrities and fo- like we had a hot mm. football team. We had a hot baseball team. We had hot music, entertainers, everything was there. Mm-hmm. So what are you going to do to draw your crowd? The one thing we did stand out was we were very professional. We, we did the upscale. You can't come in our joint with a white t-shirt and shorts on. No, all you're paying $100. Mm-hmm. So we, we raised that standard. And you know, again, again, just being very smart and making sure that we're enticing our audience to things that appeal to themselves and our professionalism. Huffington Post, Atlanta Voice, you're quoted as modest mogul, the smart entrepreneur, the modern entrepreneur. But by and large, you've built your business for millennial audiences. Yes, pretty much millennial, literally almost everyone. But, you know, we're in a a millennial era, which is that this is Mm -hmm. their time. So that is the majority of our market on all aspects that the ones coming in. They're the, the new money per se. They're the new people looking to enjoy everything that life has to offer. So where where we touch all generations, but definitely millennials are our huge target market of support. Entrepreneurship as a way of life? Definitely a way of life. How does that look for you? Entrepreneurship is it's you know, live, eat, breathe, sleep it. It's every aspect of my day, my thinking, my my planning, my future, my legacy. It's everything. Like entrepreneurship is just this, you know, it's, it's, it's what when you let your open your mind and you're willing to push it to a limit that 
you know, you use more percentage of, and you, and you move all the things like self-doubt, you move all the things like you're, you're pessimistic, oh, it may not. And when you start to channel and change that in with, you can, um, I will, I'm optimistic, I, I can see it, I can predict, I can work, I have faith, I have spirituality. You take yourself to a level of success that you never know, knew existed. So entrepreneurship does that for anybody. Anybody who's in entrepreneurship will tell you faith and belief, you know, and believing in yourself are the two biggest things that will propel you. You know, there are things that, you know, I, if you think of like a person like a, a Thomas Edison, you know, he failed like 999 times on the light bulb and then he finally got it right. That's entrepreneurship for you. You know, how many times are you willing to take a no? How many times are you willing to get rejected to get a yes? That one yes can change your whole life. So that's entrepreneurship for me in a nutshell. Like there's, there's nothing beyond, like there's always a way. There's no, you may, people may see closed doors, but I see like, okay, we can, we can cut this open and find an opening through here and make it happen. Mm. That's entrepreneurship mm. to me. You know, we solve problems. You come up with solutions. You, you find things that others cannot see. You know, you'd be able to predict and, and find channels and, and jump in and dive in heavy. You know, Steve Harvey says, you know, if, you know, if you don't jump, your parachute will never open. And that's the fear of many people, no matter where they are in life. You're standing on that ledge. You, all you see is just you're thinking about what everything wrong that could happen. When they, but entrepreneurs and everyone that's in business will tell you everything right that could happen. You will build a plane on the way down. You will pop up your parachute and you glide to safety. And that's entrepreneurship. Amazing. COVID has happened. <sighs> you run a human to human, not safe social distancing business. Yes. No such as social distancing at my events. They want to on social distance. That's what they want. To do. <laughs> yeah. And so we're now living through a global pandemic that requires social distancing. How are you at the head of your business ventures, whether that's the Greek picnic or any of the other events that you run, pivoting. That's, that's the ultimate keyword since uh, beginning of the year, the pivot. This year was the first year that we did not host the Greek picnic since inception in 2004. And it, it, was, um, it was bittersweet at, at a point because really and truly, Myself and my team, since we've started, we've never had a summer off, like never. Mm. Every summer, every year, we work year round to plan for this event, to always stay. And I tell my team, like, you know, yes, the year before, the year we just did has been very successful, but every year is a new year. We, I don't, I go, mm. we go through every step like we've never done it before because we don't want mm -hmm. to assume or be, be cocky and, and, and feeling like, oh, we've done this so many times, we can do it with our eyes closed. No, no, no. We start with a brand new sheet of paper. So we make sure every nut is tied, every T is crossed, every I is dotted, because you know there's no room for, for failure. And the pandemic came out of nowhere. I don't think anybody could have predicted, oh, you know what, this thing is going to happen. And, and you know, even when I, I not to this magnitude. Not to this magnitude. I mean, we've had things like, you know, September 11 happened after the Greek picnic in, in, in 2000. Oh, actually, that was way after. But it changed life. You know, the, 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 the pandemic hit so hard 
that I had to look at. And people were still asking, well, are you going to host it? You know, we want to, we want to come, we want to participate. But I had to be a, take this executive, make this executive decision to say, no, not this year. Because I do not want to be responsible for allowing our event with this thousands of people to now infect more people, especially where we didn't even know at that time where what like people were asymptomatic to the of to the virus, one showing signs. So we would have been a great, an amazing breeding ground for the virus, and it was not. We were not going to allow that, you know. But then, what do you do with your brand partnerships? We, I had to call everybody. I mean, from Millercores to 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 the, to the marketing agencies to call. I had to call, and we had to have that conversation. Like, look, I don't see this, and you know, the the one thing again about that and leadership is being able to take that type of responsibility because some people will see mm. just the money. People are just looking at the money. It's not about the money for for me and for my team. For us, it's about mm. the legacy of this event. We are one of the longest running black events in this country because many don't make it this far. Many don't make it beyond five years. We are 15 years in. So I'm thinking like beyond today, I'm thinking 2021, 2030, 2040, 2050, this moment we're in right now could change that depending on what I decide to do. So I had the conversations with, you know, especially Miller Coors, one of our great long-term sponsors and partners like, look, I, I just, I'm not comfortable and I, I don't want to damage our reputation and yours by forcing this event. We don't know what's going to happen. And it's, it was such a great decision to uh, suspend it because the same week of our event, we had the Atlanta protests and riots that happened the same week. Yep. I was going to touch on. Yes. You guys had COVID and then Black Lives Matter. Yes. Like, you know, and, and the one thing about um, if anybody's kind of understanding black paternal sororities, especially when we now talk about a person like the late, great Reverend Dr. Martin King was very big on civil rights. Atlanta is the home of civil rights. That's his home. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when anything happens, Atlanta is always in the forefront of, you know, media, news and uh, leaders. And I mean, the SCLC, everything is here. So. What happens now is you have injustice that's happening consistently. And it happened now with George Floyd in Seattle. And um, with that, it just ignited a bomb around, I mean, just around the country. Everybody, every city, every major city had protests and riots because people were tired and fed up. They were tired of the killings, tired of injustice, tired. And it's the same story. You know, it's the same old story. The police would get off. They won't get charged. They will validate why he had to kill him. And but we, everybody globally watched the police kill this man begging for his life and calling for his mother. So Atlanta just, and, and it's funny because I remember that day. So kind of a couple of days before we had been sharing, you know, because again, now we're not doing our Greek picnic. We had switched now into information mode. We're sharing information about protests. We're sending information about, you know, organizations that are doing this and that. And we shared a big protest that was happening in Centennial Olympic Park. And it was so packed in there. It was so crazy. But I just had this feeling. I remember watching the video that, man, I have a feeling something is going to ignite today because they were right there across from the CNN Center. And sure enough, about three hours later, the riots took place. 
and it was agitated by police. I, I mean, everybody saw it. And I just felt if Atlantic Beach Picnic had, if I had pushed it forward, our extra 20,000 people would have been right there at that protest because it's the fabric of black fraternity and sororities, civil rights, it's equal justice for all. Every organization was founded around the principles of these things, you know, and, yeah. and Black Lives Matter is at the core foundational root for everybody. You know, I, I know people who have lost cousins and, you know, the, the lawyers for George Floyd are my fraternity brothers, Chris Stewart and Justin, Justin Miller. I know them personally. Mm -hmm. So that's how close this is to me as well. So like we just, you know, the community of fraternity sororities, black people here globally, locally, we've all literally coming together to like, like, yo, it needs to change. And then it's the action points. It's not just going out in the streets and protesting and putting your fist in the air. It's now the political aspects. How are you changing laws? How are you invoking change? How are you challenging leadership and company, especially companies that you need to be involved because black people in America and globally are the biggest, not just consumers, but the, the financial weight that they, we carry as a people Mm -hmm. We are trendsetters. We take your brand from nothing to Instagram wouldn't be what it is for, without black people. So we have to hold these people to higher court of being part of civil change and, and, and justice, you know, because your family is not being killed or, you, you know, or you're not being shot with your hands up. They don't do that to, to white people. They don't. It's always black people. So Black Lives Matter is such an important thing. And it was just a matter of time when this, you know, bubble of just frustration and anger was going to burst. And it did. And it, it gave people, it's really just a glimpse. It's not like, that's not a full scale thing. It was just a glimpse of what can happen again. As a business at the intersection of what is at the forefront of, I guess, a large part of your audience, right? Yeah with the Greek picnics, their minds. Right. What role do you see your business now playing moving forward? Because this now totally changes what the Greek picnic becomes, right, next year. It doesn't necessarily change, but it gives us a very continuous path because we've been about, um, before this protest and George Floyd, and we've, we've done our own thing. We did our own thing. I mean, we've got videos where at the Greek picnic, at the step shows, we will do a moment of silence with 5,000 people to honor those who have been killed. We, you know, we've, we've done our own protest, our chants. We, we push and, you know, invoking change with leadership, but it, it's, it's, it's bigger than us. So like our part is, is little in a big puzzle, but it's, it's a continuous thing to let, you know, the visual, the visual aspect of letting people to see, especially where, you know, we are in charge of such so many people coming to this big event. It's our responsibility mm. to continue to let them be aware, like, hey, there's this program that's happening. There are these organizations. So when the partying is done, yeah, I mean, and we can multitask. We can come and have a great time. But at the same time, we're going to talk about this. We're going to do more on forums and discussions. We're going to bring in lawyers to talk about different things. We're going to bring in elected officials and have these discussions on how can people get involved. How do you invoke change from uh, a local government? How do you lobby 
your, your local uh, leaders and for laws and things to pass? How do you do these different things? So that's the role we're going to be playing heavily more than ever before is to continue to ramp up this thing. So we, we become a very strong voice. I mean, we already are, but we want to intensify that. So, you know, anything that's happening to anyone and anybody, we can also make sure we play a very vital role in that. And I always, I'll, and I say this to viewers as well, people might say, well, I don't live in America. It doesn't affect me. Well, if you come to America, what is happening will indirectly affect you because I'm very sure the police don't look at you and say, oh, you're from Gambia. Oh, you're from Nigeria. Please go your way. We don't have anything to do with you. You know? Well, we all, we all benefit from Black American culture. Big time. I think 50 Cent made a quote recently saying, you know, we all go on safari through the music. Correct. Big time. Um, and that struck me. And I think for almost every Black person who lives outside of... I guess some African countries have historical um, bias and racism, but by and large, I think I don't really know anyone who hasn't experienced racism. My father's racism experience um, or, you know, even in my daily working life, it, it presents itself in so many different ways. And I think as we continue to build businesses, even as Africans who are building global brands or who are building cornerstones of culture, I guess the question then is beyond the purpose of creating value, consciously or subconsciously striving for excellence beyond that, what else can be done? I think it's literally just, it's the awareness piece. As big as we see this and it's on media, it's on social media, it's on everything, a lot of people are still not very informed. And I think the biggest thing we want to try to make sure that people continue to understand is the, the impact on how big and detrimental this is to everybody. It affects everybody. And, you know, it's the, the layers of which it goes. And yes, people are looking and say, Oh, or Africans would say, well, it's a black American thing. It doesn't affect me, but it affects you in some type of way of immigration. It affects you way our policies that made when you do come here. It affects you if you do decide to live here, if you do decide to go to school, or your kids are here, you, you can fall victim. And there are instances that it has happened to people that, and it's not a black American issue. It's just, it's a black issue in America. And, and it comes from, you know, years and years of systemic racism and um, policing that has never actually been reformed or changed. And if anybody is very deep into history, you know, when people, black people were stolen from Africa on, on enslaved, that the, the orig origins of police was for slave patrols to protect. Yeah. Well, well, to keep the slaves slaves, really. Exactly. To keep them in. So you, we just have to be, always be very conscious and, and aware that, this is a, it's a us problem. It's not a just me because, oh, you've never been pulled over. Like I've living here, I can tell you how many times I've been pulled over racially profiled by police or I've had a gun pulled on me by police in South Georgia, on a, you know, down to Florida. So I just not like, oh, Mr. Tiwa from London, Nigerian guy, please go around your way. Just keep going. I, no, he did not care. So to answer your question, it's, it's, we need to, Continued awareness, continued discussion, continued involvement, 
You know, it's, it's not just one thing to just not get involved or to just, well, it's not my problem. No, it is your problem because the day happens to you, you're going to be seeking some type of, I need help. You know, when they violate your rights or when they, they profile you or when they abuse you for being different, not because you did anything wrong, is because the skin, your color of your skin has placed in a category that they're not comfortable with and they do what they want because they feel like they, you know, so we have to organize, we have to come together, we have to impact and do all these things to, to continuously, because it's not a, there's no like, oh, it's going to end by next year once we implement these things. It's, it's, it's like a lifelong thing because it started centuries ago. So it doesn't end mm. next year after the pandemic is over. Oh, by the way, racism is over. Like, we're going to close that off too. No, it's not going to happen like that. You briefly touched on becoming now the, I guess, an information site in response to navigating your business beyond COVID. Is that using tech, social media? Yeah, so it's it's a combination of both and also finding it's almost, I, I, I don't want to call them storytellers, but people that have mm-hmm. stories to share. You know, the one thing, again, that I do stress that our network is vast across the country. So it's people who can actually tell real life stories of, of their experiences and bring in people on our platform to talk about it and how they can get involved and cross channel these networks. I have a, a friend here, a Nigerian American friend who is a uh, superior court judge nigerian who you know mm. and i just i was thinking about his um his journey how he got to this and he was running for um office a couple of years about two years ago and how i was just thinking like man this is what we need we need to be able to have people like this that are in your in your rolodex a judge mm. you know you have access to a state senator you have access to the governor do you have them in your phone and how do you get there? How do you start to build? Because it's the connection. It's the network. We have to continue to build these networks that give us accessibility to a lot of uh, things we need to get done. You know, And there's nothing more prideful or joyful that when you're able to make a phone call to, to get things done. You know, And mm. one big thing that we've been big on with Beat Picnic is really the, and I don't want to use the word necessary politics, but it's also the governance of things. So we place that, like when um, Stacey Abrams, who was the minority house leader for the state of Georgia, she was running for governor two years ago, we made sure we were hands-on. Our And again, the network, our PR team was also representing, was working with her. And um, a, lot of, a lot of her aides were friends of ours. So again, that network, we were able to invite her out to our event, prevent, present her with an award, we spoke to her about how we're, you know, we're all in and we are also a resource. So that's what it's about. You know, it's, it's us being able to connect and make sure we have all these accessible points that we're making these, these, these things happen. Otherwise, we're doing things and shooting aimlessly. We don't have, we're not, we're not shooting to hit a target. We're just shooting and you hear a shot, but there's no, there's no impact. So being very organized and with us is, again, our motive going forward is to make sure that we're engaging and bringing all these different people and puzzles together and, and invoking a big change. You know, this year is a major election year, but Corona has changed the landscape drastically because we were planning so much stuff for campaigning and, you know, hopefully to work with the DNC and getting people registered to vote. But 
that changed. That's drastically changed. Mm-hmm. So what does that look like going into, into November? It's awareness. It's, it's encouraging people to get out and vote, encouraging people to get involved in the local elections and encouraging people to run for office. I think the future has been fast-tracked at least 10 years for almost everyone. Um, and we're all playing catch-up. Yes, big time. Thank you so much for joining us on this week's episode of Third Culture Africans. Where can everyone find you? So the, the easiest one you can find me is starting with social media. Um, LinkedIn, Tiwa Works. Instagram, Tiwa Works. Uh, Twitter is Tiwa Works 1. I just had lost my page, so I'm starting over. And um, I'm very accessible, so I, I, I respond. I check messages, everything. And again, part of the whole story from day one, it's all about networking and building. So I definitely appreciate you all um, having me and having me on your podcast. And I look forward to more conversations like this and, you know, even to dig deeper whenever you want. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I enjoyed it. Fabulous. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Third Culture Africans, the Lifestyle Podcast. We would love to hear from you. So please find us on Facebook or Instagram at Third Culture Africans and leave us a comment. A review goes a long way in getting our show notice. So please leave us one if you enjoyed this episode and we'll see you next time.